Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Tristan Sternson, you're the CEO of NCS Next, which we're going to explain how that all comes about, but welcome to The Mentor, mate. Thank you. Thanks for having me. NCS Next is a Singtel-owned entity yep. out of Singapore, yep. being the big one of the biggest telecom uh, companies in the world, particularly yep. in that Asia area. Everything Singapore does when a government's involved um, is usually pretty big. I mean, I, I remember once Singapore Post which uh, was a client of mine many, many years ago, um, won the world's best uh, postal delivery organisation um, and uh, and was the most profitable postable postal business in the world. Yeah, wow, okay. Wouldn't surprise me. Small, to small population, yep. But, yep. but it services the whole of the Asian region. Yep. They've got representation everywhere, Malaysia, Indonesia, everywhere. And Singapore, when you're dealing with Singaporeans, um, it's usually a big deal and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Country of six million people, five and a half million, they shoot well above their weight class. Seven miles, one coast to the other coast. Yeah. It's not very big. You can run it. It's, yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's yeah. totally amazing. We're going to talk about it. You could probably run it. I'm not sure about me. But, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, give me a little bit about it, but your background. I mean, like, what's your deal? Uh, you emigrated to Australia. Yep. So tell, tell me about that. Where'd you come from? Where were you? Yeah, Why'd so, you come here? So born in Scotland. Came in the 1980s, one of four siblings. I'm the youngest. Um, so I had to fight for everything. That's probably why I am where I am. Um, I don't remember Scotland. I was 18 months old. So um, came across the 1980s was terrible recession over there, industrial. My old man had a business building parkas or jackets and, and sleeping bags, and that was kind of falling away. If you had it today, it would be an absolutely amazing business. Um, but So we moved to Australia, no family. We had a great uncle. So land of opportunity, and uh, and that's where we, we came and started afresh. He started, my old man started as a uh, salesperson in the bargain basement of Maya, Melbourne, <laughs> and worked his way up to being the retail managing director, and that's that's where we start. What impact does that story have on you? It's had a huge impact. So I, I always look at people in life as to the hustle, what they've done, right, how they've gotten to where they get to, and um, we can talk a bit about what I did in sport and stuff later too, but... That's always given me the, you know, you've got to work for what you need to to achieve. You don't, not everyone's just gifted, you know, here's money, start a business and, and do it. And watching him grow his way up and do the right things and, and you know, take the right steps. And it's very calculated as well. I'm a calculated person. Um, 
that has really influenced me on that on that world. Was it was it that obvious to you that was a kid? Like, no, not at all. No. no. So I saw him go from there. He went to Sports Girl. He went to he did all these different jobs. And every time I saw him move around, it's kind of like that's your influence. So I try to do that with my own kids too. It's like they learn from what I do. Um, yeah, I was I was probably the only boy in as a teenager who used to work in a sports girl stacking shelves in the back of a warehouse in a, in a sale, right? So I got to learn it by doing it. And now I do the same with my son, right? I, I teach him how to code, right? Because that's what I do. That's what I want him to do. Um, that's what he wants to do. So it's uh, that's influenced me in a big way. Yeah. And you went to school in Melbourne? I went to a Jewish private school, Mount Scopus. Every one of the four siblings got private school as a, for primary. And then if you wanted to go in secondary school, you had to earn it. And that's how it works. So my brother got a scholarship. My two sisters went to uh, a different school, Bourne High. I moved to Bourne High in year seven, and then I was fortunate enough to go back to Mount Scopus in year eight. Um, combination of getting some bursaries through, uh, through sport, um, and also my mum was teaching there, and I, I really wanted to go back, and it was a good school for me. And that, that was part of my upbringing, built a social network. Really, really good for networks. I don't know if it's the best school in the world, but that network, and I've taken that into where I am today into the business world, like having a network of people that you're really close with and connected with has been something that's always been something that's valuable to me. The culture that sits around that, how much impact did that have on you? I'm traditional. I'm not religious. We'll follow two or three holidays a year. I've just taken my kids to Israel to kind of see it. My daughter will have a bat mitzvah. It's kind of... It's tradition for us, right? We're doing, you know, there's, and there's different levels of observation. So, you know, some people follow, you know, the the Bible and the Talmud and, the, you know, that, that, that's their way of life. For us, it's really a community and that community is what Scopus had. It's a community that, you know, and building that sense of community actually goes into your life as well. Everything I do at work, it's a community. It's a people thing. And, um, and the community has standards. Community has standards. Community, not yep. necessarily religious standards, but they are standards that derive from your religion. Yep. But you know, might not be the you know necessarily about what you can and can't eat at various times. You know, you can't eat things without scales and you can't whatever. I can't the things on the hoof and all yeah. those sort of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it might not be that. Yeah. But nonetheless, it's, there are standards as to how you live your life. Yeah. And everyone adopts different ones. So like, you know, most people won't eat milk and meat together. Like yeah. my in-laws, they yeah. won't have a. Hamburger with cheese. I yeah. will, right? Yeah. It's a different standard, right? Yeah. Some people won't eat pork. Some people won't eat shellfish. Um, but it's having that level of standards. It's something that you adhere to. You've got a community and to be part of the community, you follow certain things. And it's it could be a, it could be the same as being a part of a, a sporting club, right? You've got those standards that you adhere to and yeah. that makes you part of the club. And, and to some extent, they can actually help you excel um, yep. in, in your life. I mean, not just the people by virtue of your network of people, yep. but – your network also adheres to those standards or there is a commonality in relation to the standards so you know what you can and can't yep. rely on in terms of your network. Yep. That's really important because when it comes to picking a business partner or picking perhaps a contractor or picking somebody to do some business with, um, you know where they stand yep. by virtue of the fact that they're in the community. And by being in the community, generally speaking, you know how they operate. I'm always curious as to your ethics and where they come from. And I don't mean in a moral sense. I'm just talking about ethics, work ethic, life ethic, et cetera. What what would you attribute it to? So if you go back to the community part, I I don't have the answer to this, but I've always been kind of interested and it's something I want to look into a bit more. But there's with the standards also comes it's a minority group, right? So, you know, if you look at successful people in the country, it's a minority, right? Not everyone 
has built a business, sold a business, done it, right? And I wonder if there's a correlation there to some extent because the Jewish community is pretty small, right? Um, even the Greek community, it's pretty small, right? It's, relatively, It's, it's yeah. relatively small, right? You know, Israel is a country highly successful in everything that they do. Really small. Greece isn't. Dot. Greece isn't. <laughs> All we want to do is argue with each other, but yeah, I get yeah, okay. it. But the Greeks who aren't there seem to do better than the Greeks who are there, but yeah. go on. But you've always had to, you've always had to overachieve, right? And yeah. I think that's what, like, you look at, Back to the school, back to Mount Scobas, it's one of the best schools for education, right? You're always in the top two or three in the VCE or whatever TR results they are at the moment, and they always overachieve. So maybe there's a correlation back to what I've done. Like I've always had to, you know, to compete in that environment, even outside of what I did in sport, I've had to overachieve. I've had to do the best I can, like to be... To go to school and be a sports athlete in a Jewish school, I've like, one AFL footballer that's been any good, you know, with yeah. one cricketer, you know, who's been good. To do something like that, it's so much more amplified and it gives you that that thirst for it as well. So you're kind of, you're representing a community. So when I'm building it, representing my family for my business or I'm representing my business, you know, and working together, I build that community into everything that we do. Even the last thing when we, when we sold our last business, we kind of, we did that as a team effort. Like it was a community. We kind of, we created this thing which we said was, you know, we're going to choose our own adventure. We bought our business back. Things weren't great at the time. And we said to everyone, like, what are we going to do as a, as a business? And we built that community and we said, let's choose our own adventure and, and do it together and, and kind of hit some standards that we could overachieve. You uh, were at such a level in terms of your sporting ability, and I'd like you to talk about it, that you could have gone to the Olympics, but yep. it didn't happen. Yeah, so I was a triathlete. Triathlon is swimming, bike riding and running. Yep. The first Olympics was the 2000 Olympics. Yep. Um, Here in I, Sydney. In Sydney, yep. Um, I was a 17-year-old at the time when they started, when they announced it. So I would have been 20 for the Olympics. And they start, they, they took juniors at the time who were emerging, and I'd just raced in what was called the duathlon World Championships overseas, um, which is running, riding, and running, um, and that was in Italy. I'd just come back from the Maccabea Games, where where I had a good race. Well, I did well. <laughs> it wasn't a good race, so I was I, I could have continued to go down that path. Now, being a new sport, there was no money in it. There was it was a tough sport. You know, not many people knew about it, but it was something I loved doing, and uh, and that drove me. Taught me a lot of discipline. Um, and even at that level, like to compete at that level, like I'm I'm up at 4.30 in the morning going to swimming classes before school, right, swimming training. I'm coming home from school and doing a 10, 15K run, right, as a 16, 17-year-old trying to, you know, compete with doing my education at the same time. So traveling, I traveled during year 12, had a traumatic experience when I went to the Maccabee Games. You, you might explain, explain it because yep. that, that was the Maccabee Games where I remember something collapsed, the bridge collapsed or yep. something like that. Yeah. So as you walk into it, so they run it like an Olympics for, you know, it's every four years for the Jewish community. And as you walk in, you do that Olympic style ceremony as you walk in and it's a huge thing, right? And um, on TV in Israel and, you know, watching it was actually on ABC, I think over here. And as you walked in, Argentina went in first. Australia was the second team to go through, the biggest team. And the bridge that they built um, had some structural issues, clearly, and it caved in the middle, collapsed in the middle, um, which resulted in, in people dying. Um, I was very fortunate to be kind of in the row behind where the people were flung into the water and we were actually flung backwards onto the shore, which was extremely fortunate. Um, but that was, yeah, that was a – that's it's a it's – a, traumatic experience did you end up competing i did yes yeah so um we we decided as a team whether or not we were going to compete 
and um, and we said, you know, out of the honour of everyone else, so we're going to stop the games completely. And the Australian team said, you know, we're going to do it. We're going to compete. I competed, hadn't slept for, well, it's one of the last days. I did a triathlon in 42-degree heat in the Mediterranean Sea, which is as salty as you can imagine, right? That's the swim league. The swim league. Yeah. That's the first league. So dehydrated. I can't even remember most of the day. You know, come out of the water, not doing too well. I'm an amazing bike rider. Get to the front, doing really well. Yeah, you know, stopped for a medical penalty because I had no idea where I was, which is kind of like asking me, "What's your name?" And I'm like, I can't remember them asking. Apparently, I said something quite funny. Get to the run, to not remember any of it. Basically, hallucinating through the whole thing. Get to the end, came third. You know, needed a drift, needed everything else to kind of recover from that. And that was that was probably one of the most pivotal moments in my life because I pushed myself beyond a level that you should be able to push yourself. So subconsciously, I pushed myself beyond a boundary that you should not push yourself beyond where you could potentially kill yourself, right? Or you could do something that can be quite harmful. And um, and that's probably one of my biggest learnings in life is to kind of how to calculate the level where you go to something but don't go beyond it. Where does that ability to do that come from? Like, I mean, like that's pretty amazing. Uh, it's a, it's a competitive angle. So, so. I couldn't lose at certain things. So here's a story for you. That I'm starting to do cold plunges every morning. Right now, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you do them, but it's yeah, it, yeah. I love them, right? And uh, how long for? Get, how long are you doing for? Four and a half minutes. What time? Uh, trying to get down to below seven. Um, I'm doing them in a pool outside, so it's only about ten degrees at the moment. Got the plunge coming. I want to get down to three or four. Probably do three or four minutes. I uh, do cryotherapy every second day. Well, sorry, every second day, twice a week as well. Yeah, with so three minutes. The, yeah, three minutes yep. at negative one forty. Yep. Um, which is you know, obviously quite different and or different biohacks. It's actually, but it's, it's more uh, just. I know it's a little bit yeah. of a diversion, but um, the cryotherapy is actually a bit easier to withstand. I find than so the, much easier. than the yeah. water. It's dry. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what the hell. I don't know what it is, but I don't know what the reason. Out of, but you also don't. You don't. I don't know it's a diversion, but you you don't feel like your body has to warm up, you regulate straight coming out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I do five minutes in the morning instead of 4.30, right, it might take me an extra hour to, for my warm body up. to warm up, right? Yeah, same. And when you go negative 140, you walk out, you put your clothes back on and you – feel like you had a rush. They yeah. feel like the blood rushed straight back out. Yeah, out. exactly. You were saying that in terms of pushing yourself yeah. or trying uh, to put yourself in that extreme situation because, yep. you know, that, those tri-marathons, triathletes, that, yep. that is extreme stuff. It is extreme, yeah. But if you do it within the boundaries of what you do, so I've never done an Ironman triathlon, which is even more extreme. That's yeah. a whole day event. But yeah, back to pushing yourself to a level. Level. So I've got a friend who sent me a message yesterday: twenty-six minutes in a plunge. What? And I've <laughs> got the text, and I go, "Fucking crazy!" Yeah, right? well, that's, like, that's hydroth- stupid. Uh, that's exactly. Hydrotherma. Yeah. So the, exactly, hydrotherma. Jumped yeah. in the hot yeah. spa for forty-five minutes after that. Right, probably forty degrees to warm up. That's pushing yourself too far, right? That's oh, calculated. So. There's a science to everything that you do, like in, in this in this wellness space. And if it's four minutes thirty is the right number or five minutes thirty, you've got to work out what it is. Somewhere between whatever those are, yep. but for you. Yeah, for for, for, you, for everyone personally, yep. exactly. So where I've got to in from that moment where I've kind of pushed myself too far, I'm a very analytical person. I don't know I was that analytical beforehand. What I do, data and analytics, that's that's my background. I'm a techie, like I can code. Everything is very analytical, so I need to know everything about it. So I've got two mates and I who are very big into this biohacking world at the moment. One will send a message, you know, if you take DHEA as an example, you lose your hair. Well, firstly, he has no hair, so I don't think he has a problem there. But 
Um, DHG uh, being the uh, the uh, the, the, pre- the precursor to testosterone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I go, well, actually, no. Here's the science behind it, right? And that's that's always been my thing. It's kind of like you know, you can push yourself. You can take everything in the world, right? You can do every sort of exercise. You can do twenty six minute plunge, but if you're not doing it properly, you're causing yourself harm. When I did that race, and subconsciously, I was like, I have to win at all costs. I'm causing myself self harm to do something that isn't worth it, right? Like, you know, you're not going to kill yourself to win a race. And so that's probably the element in life. And it goes into business as well. There is a level where you go, you know, you can be, you can make more money off things, right? But is it going to cause harm on something else, right? And actually part of the story I reckon where, where we picked up the ARC group was because of that, right? We had a Melbourne IT, which was the old ARC group, sorry, the old name for ARC group, you know, first real tech company in Australia, brilliant business, pushed too hard. Went down the wrong direction, built too big, and then bang on the on the door of you know kind of closing collapsed collapse, and then we've come back in and said, "Here's an amazing business. Let's build it back up. Let's get it to the right level of operating. Right? Let's let's not push it too far." Now you you you're a software coder, yep. um, and then you set up a uh, consulting business. What was that called? InfoReady. InfoReady, yep. right? Yep. And in the midst of the GFC, um, uh, that you started, you found it and built it in the midst of the GFC. We so we go back to two thousand nine, ten, yep. eight, nine, ten. Yep. Um, then you managed to sell that for a, a reasonable amount of money. From uh, ten years later, um, yep. you sold that to the what is now what was known as the R Group yep. those days. Yep. And then you you and your Partners, business partners, bought fifty percent of that uh, that business yeah, back. A percentage, yeah, yeah, yep, yep, well, whatever, yep, a percentage yep, back. Yep. Then all of you then sold off to the Singtel subsidiary called NCS. Yeah, that's that's this that's the that's history the by yep. by steps. Yeah, yeah, yep. and uh, and along the way, you made even more money in the second sale. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So I'm back here with Tristan Sternson and we're talking about that Difficult moment, and this happens a lot of the times. Uh, you sell something to someone, they don't do such a good job with it for, or whatever. Yep. Markets change, systems change, uh, the world changes, and you think you can go and buy it back. And you try to buy back and you hopefully you buy back at a, a reasonable price. But that decision to buy back is a big deal. I mean, Kerry Packer bought back Channel 9 from Alan Bond, but that was opportunistic because Alan Bond went bad. Yep. And, uh, you know, it was the greatest transaction Kerry ever did, he says. 
What about when you brought back into ARC? What was that? What could build me a scenario? What we yep. what we're looking at there? So, I guess it's the greatest transaction I've ever done too. So that's a <laughs> good starting point, I think. And and Quadrant, who were invested with us, which was um, you know a ten x in in two years, is is pretty good for them. Um, the thought that went through my mind at the time was: here's a business. I'm kind of out of the business after InfoReady. I'm sitting on the side as a CEO. It's not doing so well. The chairman and I get along quite well. Why wasn't it doing so well? It was the same business. It was the same business. It had two parts to it. It had a domain name business, like your crazy domains, web, you know, uh, GoDaddy, et cetera. Yep. That business is bulletproof, right? If you buy a domain, it's not going anywhere, right? Yep. Rarely people change. Then there's the other business, which is the enterprise business, newer to them. Now, they knew the domain business and knew how to run that well. They had started this other business in 2013 with not much experience in it and probably the wrong leadership and way of approaching it. Like we we, we consult to the big end of town. So the enterprise business, what do you mean by that? Enterprise um, means yeah. we our customer, our customers are big enterprises, yeah. Telstra, Qantas. So not just getting license off you to run yeah. a bit of software, you building software that, that's theirs. Exactly. For the whole enterprise. Exactly. So if you fly on Qantas, that's our, we, we built that mobile app, yep. right? So that's an example of the type of work that we would do. They're used to selling a domain name to anyone, right? And now all of a sudden you're building, you're going from selling someone a domain for $100 a year to selling someone a $10 million a year mobile app, as an example, or a data analytics solution. Very, very different businesses tried to run it the same way as a small business, right? And that just doesn't work. So, And they kept pushing with that. Now, businesses need to pivot, right? That became the biggest part of our business. You need to pivot and you need to kind of understand you're in a different market and, and a way to operate. They never did that. They just kept building and building and building this model which was never going to work. And it was too late before they consulted the founders. I mean, this was the other thing. They Every founder, they bought all the businesses in the enterprise space and they got rid of all the founders. Now, the founders know their business, so yeah. so you need them in there to help you build. So they got rid of all of them. And so when it started going backwards, we saw that there's still an amazing business. Like this enterprise business had amazing customers. We were still building. You're talking about a demand though, Tristan. There was amazing demand or? Amazing demand and amazing existing customers because when we build right. something, we also support it. Right. So we're not going to lose a customer like, you know, if, if it's a Qantas mobile app and we're supporting it, I don't know if we were at the time, like someone still needs to keep that operational because yeah, otherwise it, people can't fly. Right? You just don't <laughs> give them the app and say, sir, later. Exactly. Yeah, he's got to uh, sometimes even host it, but yeah. you've got to manage it. And, and a really good example is you sell a domain name, you're on the phone, right? Yeah. You call someone up, you sell it, done, right? If you sell a data and analytics solution to a big bank, you as a CEO need to go meet with the CEO of that big bank because they're going to invest tens of millions of dollars with you to build it, right? And they just didn't have that operating model. Like they just didn't know what they were doing. So we came in, we picked it up, and we actually said these businesses are separate. Like they need to be separated. So that then put both, one or both businesses for sale to recover the debt that they built up while they were trying to build it. And they had insurmountable amount of debt that had to, to be, to be you know, gotten rid of. So we did that. So we sold it. Now, the part that came into my mind at the time comes back to everything I'd done in life. I've kind of done it always once, right? So I was once a triathlete, made it to one really big race, did really well, then I stopped, right? I did, you know, every, everything I've done, like even just little things. I always looked at that and said, I've done it once. Can I do it a second time? And it's a confidence thing. It's like if you've done it once, surely you can do it again. It right? doesn't always follow though. No, but it doesn't, right? And for me, it was a, it was kind of self-confidence in the fact I believed with the team that I had, we could do it. 
And I know we can do it again and again and again now because you got the right model of how we operate it. So going through my mind at the time was, you know, I'm going to put a significant amount of the money that I'd made off the other one. I could have stopped, done nothing, lived on the beach and, you know, been quite happy. But there was that level in it which said, here's absolutely a great business. The other thing as well is I could get the partners who I had in the first round of the business could have a more significant stake in the second part, right? I had one partner who had a really small stake, trusted in me and said, you know, we'll do something together. This was our something together, right? He's now made a significant amount out of it as well. And it's not about the money, it's about the success. And he's played a pivotal role in that. So to me at the time was like the confidence, can I do it again, right? And It's a big said, question though. It is, yeah. Because not many people do. Not, I mean, people try, but it's rare that it, yeah. you, you repeat it. And and if I look back to triathlon, I quit. Like while I had a career in it, I didn't do it for very long, right? <laughs> Here I was, you know, a thirty-nine-year-old at the time. Um, what am I going to do, right? Am I going to do something completely different and do that once, and then find something else and do that once again? So you know, I, I remember someone saying to me, and I'd invested in so many different startups, and someone said, "You should only ever get involved in the stuff you know about." Because yep. then you can influence, right? And you and have you, enough stake that you can influence. Exactly, exactly. So here was my opportunity to get something involved in something I knew and something I could influence, and and it was actually I actually reckon this it was a lot more fun the second time around because we had this team and like we just experienced we're on the brink of closing the doors, and together we're like everything we did every time a customer came on new customer even even collecting debt like calling up and getting our Data days down from 65 days to 45 days. Like everything was a huge win. Whereas in your first business, your huge win is not calling the bank to say, I need to pay payroll this month. Yeah. Give me another you know, half a million bucks to, to pay for people, right? It was just different. What are the non negotiables that must exist before you make that decision to go again? Yeah. So I needed being an analytical person. The first time was an opportunity, right? And I had nothing and to lose. And you fly by the city bands, yeah. whatever happens. started happens. in my bedroom yeah, yeah, or yeah. my garage or whatever people talk about. But, you know, if I failed at that, I didn't lose much, yeah. right? And you were younger too. Exactly. And so this time around the non-negotiables were what are the things that weren't working in the business? We had a debt problem. So I had to go and find myself. And this is where, you know, we, we were partnering with a private equity firm. We said, what is the one thing we needed? We needed a shit hot CFO, right? Someone who could come in, someone who would be of the quality that could run a Telstra, for example. So right? when you mean, yeah, okay, so much as if I just ask a quick question. Yep. There. Um, when you mean there was debt there, was the debt to the, um, the private equity group or was, it, or was it external debt? External debt. Okay. So, so in the old ARC group, there was debt that had to be to two banks and we yep. had to pay it back. So right, okay. So, that's the, okay. so that's, yep. you can't go to your partner and say, oh, listen, you know, let's sort of subordinate the debt or, yeah. okay, so that may, that's a big difference. Yeah. So the, the non-negotiable is what in that regard? The non-negotiable in that regard is, well, A, you got to kind of get rid of the debt, so we had to sell part of the business to do that. Right. And the second part was- But you have to, to have the ability. You have to have the ability. So you have to have an asset you can sell yeah, exactly. to, to, to pay down- the debt or part of the yep. debt. Which and is you... why we sold one of the two businesses. We ended up selling both yep. and that paid off the debt. So when we bought it, so the part we bought came debt-free but it paid off the debt. Yep. That was I the understand. money. Effectively, we paid the debt plus a bit more to to, to take over the business. Yeah, right. And so yeah. that's and the second non-negotiable you said is you needed a good finance person who understands, yep. like actually understands budgets, cash flows, you know, debt repayment systems, blah, blah. Process the works behind it, yeah. And I think the key thing we learned out of that was how poorly the shareholders were also treated on the way out. They were a publicly listed company, right? Right. Shareholders lost 
tens of millions of dollars, right? Big shareholders. And to me, if you're going to be share, fair to your shareholders, whether I'm the shareholder, whether it's a private equity firm or whether it's public shareholders, making sure that you have the right finance in place, making sure you're returning the right capital, you're, you're treating your investors, they're the owners of your business with the respect that they deserve. We, I, I, we lost our way when we were kind of, you know, tanking our share price, like as it was going down, there was there was no thought around how is this impacting the physical lives of people who have put a lot of money in. And when you go from, we went from $3.72 share price to $0.08, cents, yeah. right? That's a serious loss for someone who might yeah. have you know, who, $20 million invested who, 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 in it. Or someone right? who bought it yeah. $3.71 and, uh, <laughs> and they're not looking very happy. Yeah, it mean, could be the whole super. Personally, I mean, I had $1.72 shares that went down to $0.08. Cents. Like I felt it yeah. and like I could afford to lose it. But some people can't, right? Yeah. And in a domain business as well, <laughs> your typical shareholders are kind of your superannuation, your, your mama and papa sort of business you know, investors who are kind of, it's a stable asset, right? And and they lost all the money. So that was a non-negotiable is that we had to have rock solid financials. So we had to have the right person to come in and do that and set up system and process because I've always followed the scale up methodology. And if I can't measure what I'm doing, it goes back to my biohacking as well. If you can't measure what you're doing, then you don't know what the levers are that are going to make you successful. So we we looked for, we ran to building run rates rather than performance. So, Explain that. So run rate for us was um, we're a consulting business, we charge per day, right? So how many billable days can we do a week? Based on the number Based of people. Based on the number got. of people. Yep, exactly. And at an average customers. daily rate, right? So we looked at that. That's, that's the one metric we looked at every day. And we said, if we can get to December 31 at this number, then we're successful. Now, we might have ended the year with a million dollars profit. We might have ended the year on $20 million profit, but we knew the next year would be successful because you start the year after. I mean, our projects are long-term. They're three months, six months, 12 months. So if we're on a run rate, we know that that run rate's going to keep. It's a good way of looking at things. So you said of your tech people, yep. um, the people who yeah, who you can bill out, I've got, uh, just for argument's sake, I've got 10 and uh, I'm billing them out at, to make it easy, a thousand bucks an hour. Yep. So that's ten thousand an hour, and I've got, if I can say, eight hours a day. That's um, eighty thousand a day, and I've got five days a week. That's yep. four hundred thousand bucks a week, and I'm going to multiply by fifty. So I've got, uh, you know, whatever it is, two million bucks a year, whatever, yep. whatever the number is. Yeah. Um, uh, did you? So that that's that's pretty um, unsophisticated. But did you then go and say, now, by the way, a a billable day is really only six hours. Did you go and sort of look at efficiencies and, and yep. then, then did you go back and measure what everybody's doing? Yep. And you subtracted then, by the way, did exactly the same exercise in terms of their cost yep. and you could see what the profitability was or yep. you know what your margin is. Yep. So how do you? How did you, in terms of, I get, I get, I understand the data piece or the gathering of data, one. I understand um, uh, the analytics around how you use that data relative to how you budget. Yep. But how, where do you get uh, day one? Where do you get your sensibilities as to and your sensitivities as to what is correct? Yeah. So sensitivity was our word, right? <laughs> That's kind of always a key thing. Is that the more sensitive your business is, like if you lose one project, then your cost. How'd you do that? Then how'd you work that out? Yeah. So we, we we worked out levels. So we had different levels, and then we also got hit by COVID at the same time. But um, we had different levels, and at the level we said at the time we were doing call it $80 million of revenue in an, in an area, right? We would say for $80 million of revenue to make X profit, we can afford this operating cost, right? Right. But if we want to get to the next level, which will be $120 million, 
to build up the next cost, we've got to be very strict on not building up the cost in between it. So everything from 80 to 120 is is profitable for the business, right? Right. So when you would break even at one point and the other point, and then we reverse calculated that into how many people, how many billable days, and then how many projects we needed to do that. Right. Yeah. I wish we could do a thousand dollars an hour. That would have been nice. No, but it's just, <laughs> like just, just for the sake of calculation. Yeah, but, but it's good. But it's good. We'll get there one day, maybe. Well, lawyers do it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe my generative AI bot or something can can charge that. But yeah, lawyers definitely. Well, do. no, no, generative AI That's bot. Your, your bot's going to have to change less. Charge less. That's the whole idea. Yeah, of it. exactly. Maybe I should. But just don't tell them it's a bot. Yeah. Tell us a real person. Because what you're talking about here, Tristan, is yeah. uh, this is modelling. Modelling to me is always um, inaccurate because the only reason I say that. that I, bear with me, is because to be a perfect model, you have to have all the variables. Yeah. And you never know what all the variables are because you don't know don't know what you don't know. Yep. I mean, there's external variables which you don't control. COVID, yep. COVID. Whatever is yep. a great example of it. But, you know, you build your model and then from that you can get a lot of confidence that you will make the investment. Yep. Or take the leap of faith. Did you do that before COVID hit and then all of a sudden COVID hit and you went, oh, my God. With sensitivity has triggers, right? So COVID came and triggers are easier. So if you don't do X, you need to trigger Y, right? And we always had that. And we were very transparent. Like the one thing we've always done since we've, yeah, in info ready days and then when we took over the business is we tell our staff our performance. We show them everything and we say, if we can't hit this, like simple example, if I can't hit um, hiring 20 people a month and I've got four recruiters, then I've got a trigger that I only need three recruiters, right? So it's a very calculated decision. So we always knew which sensitivity hit what trigger. But on the upside, if we can hit 30 people, we hire another recruiter, right? As long as we can sustain it. So that that was the levels of what we always did. COVID comes along and then all of a sudden your triggers are like... They're firing off everywhere. It's like, yeah, it's an alarm. It's like going off all over the place. But we were fortunate. I mean... We, we were lucky. We had well, lucky and unlucky. We had some customers who were in the insurance space that needed to ramp up considerably, and we had and financial services and all that kind of move quickly. We had other customers that were in aviation that just kind it of closed had down, to stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that it's all about then sort of moving your momentum towards those areas where there's the most demand. Yeah. So you have to be, have to have quite a, quite a deal of flexibility in those environments. Yeah. Making the decisions quickly. That's yeah. the one thing that I've always done and with the team. It's like if you're going to make a decision, do it quickly, move on. Deal with the consequences Hire, fire, whatever it is, right? Yeah. You just got to deal with it, right? And if there's a consequence of, of an error or, yeah. or some sort of, then you deal with it down the track. Because procrastination kills businesses. Yeah, yeah totally. And that's what killed our last business, right? Yeah, just yeah. stuffing around. Just stuffing around. Uh, overthinking, too long, overthinking. Overthinking, taking too long and just, yeah, that, that's what really hurts. So where would you, so because, you know, you're an analytical guy, you live, you live in the analytical world around data. Yeah. Um, where would you say analysis should sort of start and end? Like uh, it's obviously very important, but if you overanalyze, you don't do anything. So, yep. I mean, how do you manage that process? Well, inst- I mean, instinct's everything as well, but analytical supports the instinct. So when you always look at decisions, it's kind of, it's like, you know, someone's always made a decision. Telstra goes into a new product, right? They've made a decision. The analytics just supports whether it's right or wrong. So yep. typically, unless the analysis comes through and says this is a terrible idea, right, then yeah, you, you know which way you're going. I've always operated on gut as well. Like, you know, when you hire the right person, you build the right product. Like even with, I look at generative AI at the moment. The first thing we did when generative AI came out was we published internally to our staff. Here's a set of reasons you should not use generative AI for these scenarios. And here are the things you should do, right? You can go and write a 
love letter to your fluffy white dog and tell them it's, you know, how much, you know, <laughs> you love, whatever. You can do that, right? But don't go create code for your customer <laughs> you're going to deploy because it's going to create all these security loopholes. But that's the gut for us was that this is something amazing and it's going to happen. The analytics was, well, actually, you know, which part of it should you be doing and which part should you not be doing? And and it's just been the same with us with business. It's always the gut is we're going to do this and then the analysis just kind of supports it. At what point did you and your colleagues and your private equity fund yep. make the decision that um, that you would sell off to the Singtel subsidiary, which is NCS? Yeah, so we, we knew them as a business. Right. Um, we'd, we'd spoken a few times. I, I knew the CEO. Ex, you know, I, I worked for Accenture for a while. He worked for Accenture. So it was kind of a small network. We we built an amazing business in Australia and we wanted to build it overseas. And I'd had, I've failed at doing the same thing in Singapore. I built InfoReady in Singapore. I built it in Ireland. Neither were very successful. We wanted to go global. We said to our staff, what do we want to do? This was our choose our own adventure. And we said, we want to go and build out a global network. So we went out and we started looking for businesses. Now we knew Singtel, we knew NCS. They needed to build a presence in Australia. And they had a very, very, very similar culture, right? And you could go to any country in Asia and every country has a different culture in how they operate. And there is a different culture to the way they operate. But we found them the most similar to the services. We're a very innovative thinking company. As so is Singapore. Yeah, and so are they. Yeah, so so Singapore as a country, right, they live innovation. They're one of the best tech startup countries in the world, right? Yeah. So to me as an innovator, as someone who kind of, you know, we're, we're always building something like our, our mantra is to build it before anyone else knows about it, right? So it's thinking of the futures to ignite possibilities. Um, so we, we've always been building stuff before others. They were doing the same thing and we loved that. So we actually approached them and we called them up and we said, look, we would love to sell to you. I mean, typically you approach someone to try and sell your business. But before we ran the process and I said, look, we'll give you a period of time. And if we can come to a deal that Quadrant are happy with as well, because yeah, they're a major stake and they're the private equity firm. So I had an interesting role of playing, you know, keep Quadrant happy on one side and say, well, you know, we're going to get an unbelievable deal. They were probably may or may not get somewhere else without testing the market. And at the same time, I had to get Singtel to pay a, a fair price because if you know, if it was a process, you put your bids on the table, the highest person wins, yep. right? So we had to get them to be almost that highest person without running a process so the Quadrant got a fair deal and our shareholders all get a fair deal. So that was a tricky one. So we approached them, took a bit of time courting. You know, DDs are the worst thing in the world. We did a pre-DD, followed by another pre-DD, followed by a DD, and just went through the whole process like too many times. And, uh, but, and you know, your private equity, private equity, you want to get deals done in six weeks. Yeah. You know, big, large, largest telco in the world group, they want to take a year. Yeah. You've got to try and massage that in the middle. So yeah. it wasn't, wasn't easy, but we did approach them. We loved them. We loved them as a business, and, and that's been really good for the integration of what we've done as well. So we didn't – I mean, we talked to others. We definitely talked to others. We had a lot of approaches. And so kind of because we we had those approaches, we knew what our value was in the market. One of our competitors had recently sold similar business. We knew what their value of the price was. So kind of set all those variables in place. So we weren't testing a market where we had no idea what the value was. It's back to doing a tri-marathon, by, by the way, because, you know, yep. there's you've got, you've got to swim, run and bike on, on or cycle on yeah, you know, when you're during this DD process yeah. and you've got to push yourself to the limit. Yeah. You, you do because that is that is a process. DD yep. is a, I often say it's two words for reducing the price. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's the whole process. Yeah, we love it. We Yeah, we agree term sheet price 
And then what you don't know is uh, the next nine months they spend trying to reduce the price. Yeah. They don't say we never try to reduce the price. And I'm not saying sing, sing to it, but this is generally speaking what happens because the more you tell them, the more they hear, and the more you say, the more they ask, and the more they ask, the more they start to talk themselves out of the whole deal or whatever. I mean, they yep. put in it's, – it's really – it's a fascinating process. So you're, you're still the CEO though. Yeah, so, so we've got a new business called NCS Next. Yep. Um, and so it's part of NCS. It's the innovative part of um, NCS. And I actually co-run that with the the uh, Winthia, who's, who was the leader of the business before. So we run that together globally. So it's a global business. And we always wanted to be a global business. So, yeah, still running that. Um, Enjoying it still? Loving it, yeah, absolutely. I've got bigger toys to play with. It's yeah, like, and, and, yeah. A, and balance sheets and all that. balance sheets, bigger toys, bigger teams, bigger – We've got innovation centers. It's like, you know, robots walking around. Some of the robot stuff that we do in Singapore, it's like, yeah, they got robot policemen. Like, it's really cool. Where are we going with all this um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and artificial intelligence? I love the research. I call it the resurgence of AI. AI has been there forever, right? Yeah. We've been doing every time you bought something in COVID and they said, oh, wouldn't you like this as well? Yeah. That's AI at its absolute yeah. max, right? Learning about you, what Learning your preferences about you. are. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So generative AI, you know, it's, it's popular at the moment because anyone can go on to BARD or Bing or, or Bing or whatever. I haven't, just, I haven't, yeah, I haven't yeah, tried BARD yeah. yet, but uh, chat GPT, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty cool. And even even if you go back to what was someone telling me the other day, if you ask Katana, no, Siri, who Katana is, and then they ask another question, it just comes up with this kind of, it's got a sense of humor and it's quite cool. Um, where's it going to head? It's going to make jobs a lot easier. It's not going to replace jobs. It's going to enhance jobs. So when you've got tasks that are, you know, simple and easy to do, we do a lot of intelligent automation, repetitive robotics in tasks, the stuff that people don't want to do. We want to do more meaningful stuff. Population grows in the world. We've got to do more to support it. Right, people get older. There's more jobs, less people. You know, we've got a skill shortage in Australia. My my thoughts are that this just makes it easier to do that work, and we do more meaningful work. Now, you know, post COVID, people want to work from home. There's all this different way of working, etc. In some countries, and some that's a bit different. When you add all the the AI element to it as well, they're going to do that heavy lifting job that can process mind and thought a lot quicker. Right. Will it completely change the world? Yeah, it will. Like mobile apps changed the world 10 years ago. No one thinks about it in the same realm, but it is exactly the same thing. We didn't have smartphones well, more than 10 years, but 12, 13 years ago. And now we're telling people that the first thing you shouldn't do in the moment is check morning is check your notifications. Bad for your mental health, right? And that's an example of how how a big part of your life it's been, right? I've got a daughter who can't get off Snapchat, right? Generative AI is the next wave of that, right? And what it will do, well, AI in general, will just make things a bit easier for us to do, right? You're, you're not going to have, you're not going to have robots kind of patrolling. Well, maybe you will police and stuff like that. And, but you'll have cameras that will look at cars and see what they can tell you and, and feed that information back. And then there's still a human in the loop that has to train it and and teach it what it needs to do. So you're not so, buying into the into the hysteria because governments are. And, well, and and then you know we've got all those people sign those uh, petitions, and of course. Uh, um, uh, Stephen Hawking made that fearless prediction that artificial intelligence will grow at a speed faster than um, the human race can evolve and where our own human intellect can evolve, I should say, and, yeah. um, you know, scare the bejesus out of everybody. But uh, you're not buying into the hysteria? No, not at all. I mean, I, I, it'll do a lot more than we than we than it does today. Our robots going to become that sci-fi where they train each other and they take over the world, and we become their servants. And you know, like we cease to exist. Well, that's the same one as you know, kind of we're probably a microcosm and 
in Earth and someone's controlling us from above and this is all an experiment, right? I don't think any of that is true. It's a good story, though. It is a good story, but regulation is important, right? Yeah, no, totally. Like Because it can do, it can be used, you know, maliciously in warfare. It can be used in cybersecurity attacks. It can be used for, for, for bad, right? So there can be bad actors, yeah, basically. There are bad actors and they're out there. That's why there's so much cyber yeah. issues at the moment because you're not dealing with a person, you're dealing with AI. Right, and they can they can learn more. They can crack a password in a fraction of a second because they can think quicker than we can. So regulation will stop that. Um, will it get to the stage where a machine teaches a machine more than we can know? Well, if we can't, we, our our minds are elastic, right? We we're constantly learning and we're teaching it to them. So I always think we'll stay a step ahead because the only thing a computer can do is what we've told it to do. So we'll always know where the off switch is to some extent. Well, I like your positivity, to be frank with you, and I'm sort of more on your side than I'm on the uh, naysay side. But I th- one, the only thing I would say is that we don't want to run the cryptocurrency um, experience where it was never regulated and the bad actors took advantage of the situation, yep. um, particularly in exchanges, um, crypto exchanges. Um, you know, we've seen what's going on at the moment. and Because well, all that does is give it a whole thing about rap and the whole thing just falls apart and lots of people lose money. So I'm actually in favour of the regulatory environment, yep. as yep. long as we don't have politicians um, trying to uh, leg up themselves into overregulating things, because yep. that's the worst outcome we possibly come. Because we want, we need, the, we need the creativity yep. that this lends itself to. Yep. You know, it's wonderful. But I'm like you, uh, sure, he's written a couple of poems and bits and pieces, and uh, but you know, like it doesn't, especially ChatGPT, which is a bit out of date in terms of timing, but. It disappoints a lot. Yeah, so far for me, but the stuff I've asked it to do, it, it's been an eye opener. It's an awakening of the world into oh, totally. AI, right? And that's that's a great thing, right? Whether the tool is actually that useful, who knows? Like we've we've created financial advice off it, right? And it's good, right? But it's a really good search engine for that. Sort the of old stuff. right. This is the robo advice. This, this is, is what, robo this advice. This is what people were talking about robo advice yeah. years ago. It's finally here. Yeah, but it's still sort of incomplete and a little bit inaccurate, yeah. but but it's getting better. But the banks have been doing it in IA chatbots anyway for yeah. ages. Like we did one with one of the big banks five years ago, which read through all the policies and told staff whether or not they could sell their shares or tell them whether this was a risk factor for a customer and stuff like that. All it's done is just kind of highlight that. But it's years of work already in the making. Um, ChatGPT came out, wrote one poem, and the rest of the world is like, <laughs> how cool is this? AI is here. The robots are taking over, so now we need to take it seriously. But it's been so, here all the time. It's been here the whole time, yeah. So we just need to – the regulation's important, and it's forcing it because politicians see what's here and now and what's sexy and shiny and whatever, which is which is good, right? But it's, it's a good way to bring their awareness to it because if it didn't happen, we could be here in five years' time and you would have all these malicious actors and people you know, sharing stuff around the world because no one knows about it. Well, I think this, this has been a, a fascinating discussion. Um, good luck with NCS um, next, NCS next as CEO. Um, I mean, I can think of no one better than to have in in our region at least is, is Singtel as a as a business partner. Singaporean institutions are amazing institutions. I'm talking about the institutional level; they're just amazing, especially when it comes to tech. Good luck with that, and. Uh, no doubt I'll be reading in the future um, some sort of commentary you're going to be talking about in terms of AI and, uh, you know, generative, generative AI and also um, robotics, which is like for me one of the most fascinating developments that we're going to see and luckily we're going to get to experience over the next, for me in my case, at least the next 20 years. Yeah. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mentor with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance. Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.